When I was a child, somewhere around the age of 10, we took a family vacation to Yellowstone National Park. It was a really incredible park. If you've never been to Yellowstone, you ought to go. It's a great place. But one of the things that stood out to me, even as a 10-year-old, was all the signs throughout the park telling you don't go near the animals. In fact, if you go to their website today, their website, when I looked at it, still looks like it was made in the 90s, but if you go to the website today, it still has on there that you should stay away from, you should stay 25 yards away from most wildlife like deer and bison. I would recommend staying further away from bison than that. And they recommend that you stay 100 yards away from lions and bears. I didn't think you had to tell people that. But apparently you do. And these signs are everywhere. And I think there's one event from Yellowstone that stands out to me. One evening, we were driving down a little road that ran parallel to a hill. And the sun had just set, and so all the trees were either a dark, dark blue or a black. And this hill went up about 25 yards. So you could see the crest of the hill, and you could see the little glow of the sun behind it. And as we were driving, we saw this little, I think it was a little yellow car, pulled off to the side of the road. And there was a couple getting out of the car. And it was an elderly couple in the eyes of a 10-year-old. That is to say, they had all gray hair or white hair. And they were getting out of the vehicle, and the husband stopped the car, and he gets out of the driver's side, he walks around to the passenger's side, and he helps his wife get out of the car, and they start walking towards the hill. And we're driving past going, there's nothing up there. Why are they going up this hill? And as we drove past, someone in the car looked over there and said, there's a bear up there. And then we all sat there kind of shocked and amazed. Why would you get out of the car and go walk towards a wild bear? Who does that? We couldn't believe they would do it. Didn't they read all the signs saying, don't go near the wildlife? I mean, when I was a kid, I had a teddy bear, but I never... What were they thinking? What was he thinking? Later that evening, my father was a ham radio operator. He had a ham radio in the car. I don't remember how much longer this was, but we, were, we heard a report on the radio. We could hear the park rangers talking on the radio. And there was a report of a bear attack on an elderly couple. I don't know anything about those people. Never met them before in my life, and I never saw them after that. I don't even know if that was them. But it was in the same area that we were in. I don't know how badly they were injured. I don't know if they survived. I have no idea. But I can't help but wonder... What was going through that man's mind as he watched this bear maul his wife? What was he thinking? He's the one who was driving the car. He's the one who stopped the car. He's the one who got out and helped her out of the car and led her up the hill. 
Did he have flashbacks in his mind of all the signs that said, don't go near the wildlife? Did he hear a park ranger's voice in his head telling him, stay away from the animals? He ignored every single warning. He ignored every sign there was. He ignored every bit of human intuition and human common sense, which is why you all get it when I say, what was he thinking? It's a bad idea to go near a bear. And I have to wonder, what was he thinking when he watched his wife getting mauled and he could do nothing but stand there helpless as a dove as the woman that he loved is getting brutalized by this wild animal? She is now suffering for the consequences of his foolishness. And there is nothing he can do about it. I can only imagine, if I was in his shoes, he must have felt like a fool. He had received all the warnings. He had every bit of information that was necessary so he could avoid this outcome. And he ignored every bit of it. What a fool. And I don't say that as a pejorative to insult the man. I'm not trying to be insulting. That is actually a biblical term that the Bible uses in a specific way. In the New Testament, the Greek word moros refers to a person who is unwise. One who has the right information but is incapable or unwilling to use it. To apply it to his situation. He's unwilling to act according to what he knows is right. The Bible defines that person as a fool. You might say this is a person who makes dumb choices. Jesus himself used the term to describe people who have all the information they need and yet reject it. Matthew 7, verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. To hear the words of Christ, to hear Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount, and then to ignore everything he said is the greatest act of foolishness you could ever possibly imagine. In the New Testament, the term fool is used to refer to the ungodly who reject the offer of salvation that's made to them. It refers to those who do not heed the warnings of Christ and the rest of scriptures that judgment is coming and you need to be ready for it. In Matthew 25, 1 through 13, you're going to see three characteristics of a fool so that you can prepare for judgment. Three characteristics of a fool. I've actually entitled this sermon, Characteristics of a Fool. The biblical term. Let's look at the first characteristic of a fool. The first characteristic of a fool, the fool is unprepared. The fool is unprepared. Because the fool only focuses on today. What's right in front of them. They don't give any thought about tomorrow, much less a year from now. And they do nothing to prepare for the future, even when they know what's coming in the future. Like that couple walking up to the bear. The fool ignores all the warning signs and refuses to take any action to get ready for the judgment they know is coming. Look at verse 1, Matthew 25, verse 1. 
Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. To start, we have to ask the question, what is he referring to here when he says, then the kingdom of heaven, what does he mean by that? This is what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is discussing what is going to occur in the future when he returns and establishes his kingdom. And in Matthew 25, he does that by giving parables. And I want to just show you that 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 is what he's talking about. He's talking about what happens when he comes back. We'll go back to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is where this whole narrative begins. Look at verse 3. The disciples come to Jesus and they ask him a very important question. Matthew 24, verse 3 As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? When are you coming back? We know you're coming back. We know judgment's going to be coming with you. When is it going to happen? How do we know when you're coming back? Well, Jesus doesn't give them a day or an hour. Jump over to Matthew 24, verse 36. He gives them a whole bunch of signs, but in... Verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. His answer to the question they asked, when are you coming back? That's not for you to know. You're not supposed to be checking your watch and figuring out when he's coming back. You're not supposed to be reading the signs of the times and going, oh, he's going to come back on this day. You don't know when he's coming back. You don't know when he's going to return. You don't know when you will stand before him in judgment. So what are you supposed to do? His answer? You're supposed to be ready. You're supposed to be prepared for his coming back. Verse 44. uh, Excuse me. Let's go to verse 42. Verse 42, he has a parable. And the parable is to teach this idea that you are to be alert and ready. Verse 42, therefore be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. You don't know when he's coming back. You don't know when judgment is going to be here. So you are to be ready. Be prepared. And this parable pictures a master leaving his slave. And he tells the slave, I'm going away. You take care of the business in the household. And he entrusts his household to the slave. And he expects the slave to do what the master wills him to do. And to be a good, obedient slave. But as soon as this master leaves... This slave kind of acts like a 10-year-old, just does whatever he wants. No one's here. No one's going to know what I'm doing. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm not trying to insult any 10-year-olds in the room, by the way. Verse 48, but if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This slave was supposed to be prepared. He was supposed to expect his master to return at any time, at any moment. And that knowledge should have caused him to behave appropriately in a way that would be pleasing to his master so that when his master returned, his master would be pleased. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is telling another parable. Parables are stories, and they have one primary point. Every parable has one main point. And this parable, this short story, has one specific message, and that message is about the coming kingdom. 
what is the coming kingdom like? It's not changing the definition of the kingdom. It's not saying that the kingdom is here today or the kingdom will be you know, different than the Old Testament. It's the same kingdom described in the Old Testament, but he's giving you basic truths about that kingdom. And in our parable this morning in Matthew 25, he has a message he wants you to hear. And the message is, you need to be ready. You need to be ready for the return of Christ and for judgment day. Matthew 25, verse 1 again, that the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Virgins here are young women. These are young women who are of age to marry, but they have never been married. These are chaste, pure virgins. And these virgins are bridesmaids in a wedding. Now, the truth is, we don't know all the details on ancient Jewish weddings, but we do know something about, some things about their weddings in that time. We do know that marriages at that time were arranged by parents. And the parents would select the, the, the groom, and they would go out and find a bride for him. And then there was a betrothal. The betrothal was the period where they exchanged vows. And once they made their vows, they were technically married. The only way they could break the betrothal was to get a divorce. But they didn't live together during the betrothal. They lived separately. The betrothal time was a time of testing. It was a time of testing for her. Can she remain committed to her, to her groom? Can she be pure and chaste and wait for her groom? And it was a time of testing for the groom because he had to go out and prove that he could take care of his new bride. He had to go out and find gainful employment, proving and earn an income, build a home, and prove that he had the means and the wherewithal to provide for her and care for her. And at the end of the betrothal, when the groom has proven himself and he has a home built for his bride, he comes back for his bride and he gets her and he takes her to a wedding feast, a big party. And this big party was a town-wide event. Everybody in town would show up. The bride would wait at her home with her bridesmaids for her groom to come and get her. And the groom would be allowed to come whenever he was ready. He didn't announce his arrival. He didn't, tell the, he didn't send a little letter and say, hey, I'll be there in two weeks. He just said, I'll be back when I'm ready. When I have a house prepared, I'll be back for you. And then he left. And he would show up whenever he was ready. Whenever the house was prepared. And he would go to the bride's home, and he would get her, and her bridesmaids would come with her. And they would all travel in a procession through the streets of the town to the wedding festival. And the bridesmaids, these virgins, would escort the couple to the wedding, or to the ceremony, to the, to the party. And the bridesmaids would carry torches. The word here in Matthew 25, the thing in the NASB, calls them lamps. These are torches. They would carry torches as they process, and these torches would be burning bright. So at night, if you looked from a distance, you would see this bright light moving through, and in the center of that light was the bride and the groom. This was attracting attention to this couple. And proclaiming to all the city, there's a party going on. These two are getting married. And they would enter the wedding feast like royalty. And we see here in Matthew 25, verse 1, we see there are ten bridesmaids, ten virgins. 
this couple is going to have 10 people with torches surrounding them as they walk to their wedding feast. Verse 1 again, all 10 of them took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. That's a summary statement of the entire parable. They went to the bride's home and they waited for the groom to arrive. Verse 2, five of them were foolish and five were prudent. Let me say that a different way. Five of them were moros and five of them were foolish, moros, and five of them were prudent. Prudent here would refer to wise Wise people aren't necessarily smart. It's just that they take the information they have and they apply it. They use the information correctly. But why does Jesus call these other five foolish? What's wrong with these other five? Verse 3, For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. They were foolish because they had lamps, but they didn't bring oil. And as I said before, these lamps are a torch. How do we know they're torches? This same word is used uh, by John in John 18 to refer to what the soldiers are carrying when they come to arrest Jesus. John 18 verse 3 uh, says that Judas and the soldiers came with lanterns and torches. And that second word, torches, there is our same word here for lamps. These are torches. A torch, you've probably seen it in a movie or maybe you've had one, is a stick. And on one end of the stick, they wrap rags or cloth on it. And then they douse that in oil, and they let it dry. And they would pre-soak it, and you let it dry, and that way you have a torch ready when you need it. But here's the thing. If you tried to light it when it was dry, it would light for a few moments. And then it would sputter, and then just produce a whole bunch of smoke, and it would go out. You had to have oil that you could pour onto the torch and get it wet so it would light and burn. And at that point, it'll burn the wet oil and it'll burn the oil that's already soaked into the rags. And you'd have a, tor a torch that would burn for quite a while. Now, this was common practice. It would be like someone today telling you, hey, you have a flashlight, go get some batteries. You wouldn't need someone to tell you that. You would look at the flashlight, open it up and go, I need batteries. This was common. A child of that day would have known how to light a torch. Everyone knew that you needed extra oil for your torch. Five of the ten virgins show up to the bride's home with torches and no oil. They knew they needed it. They knew their lamps would go out without it. They didn't bring it, though. Having a torch that was burning was a requirement to be a part of the wedding procession. You couldn't be in the procession of bridesmaids unless you had a burning torch. These virgins were bridesmaids. It was their job to have a burning torch for the wedding festival. That was what they were there for. This was to honor the bride and groom. This was supposed to be an act of love for their friends. To bring attention to the newly married couple. And for a bridesmaid to show up with a torch that isn't lit and cannot be lit is a disgrace and an insult to the bride and groom. This was inexcusable. They knew what they needed. They knew they were bridesmaids. They knew what their job was, and they were not prepared. They were not ready for the festival. And yet they showed up that way. And for this, Jesus says they are fools. 
They knew what was coming, and they refused to prepare for it. They had all the information they needed, just didn't act on it. The other five, however, are called prudent. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, But the prudent took oil in flask along with their lamps. A flask here is just a small container that's filled with oil. And the five wise virgins, the prudent ones, thought ahead. They planned well. And they took a flask, they filled it with oil, and they brought it with them so that they could light their torch when it was time. So that they could honor the bride and the groom. Wisdom here is defined as being prepared. Being ready. Foolishness is depicted as a person who is unprepared. They know what they need. They just don't do it. Let me make a connection from this to you. Romans 3 says that we are all sinners. That there is none that is good. No, not one. That all have fallen short. That all have transgressed the law. And all of you know that. And even if you say, well, I didn't know that before, you know, you know it now. And I've already shown you passages over and over and over again from Matthew 24 that judgment is coming. Judgment day is coming and you don't know when it's going to be. And at any moment, Christ could return. At any moment, he could take your life. At any moment, you could die. You could be standing before Christ in judgment in 50 years or in 50 seconds. You don't know when that's going to happen. You know you're a sinner. You know you violated his infinite law. Your conscience is screaming at you that you have. The question is, are you ready for judgment? Are you prepared to stand before an infinite and holy, righteous, just God who hates all sin? Are you ready right now? Well, that begs the question, well, what does it mean for me to be prepared? What do I have to do to be prepared? Does that mean I need to be perfect today? Well, no, you, that's not what that means because you can't. You can't be perfect. And so I'm not suggesting that what you do to be prepared is go home and clean up your life, which is oftentimes what people try to do. Well, I'm just going to go out and try harder. You'll just go out and sin more. You can't be perfect. And merely stopping sinful behavior isn't the, the answer. Because merely stopping sinful behavior does nothing to remove the fact that you are guilty. The murderer doesn't get off just because he stopped murdering people. He still has to pay, pay the penalty for his, his crimes. You have already broken the law. We are all already guilty. You deserve judgment. You deserve to suffer for your crimes. You can't remove your guilt. So what do you have to do to be prepared? What I'm asking you when I ask you, are you prepared? I'm asking you, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he is the only one who can take away your guilt. He is the only one who can make you acceptable so you can stand before God in judgment. Have you come to him and given up on your good works? Or are you here today and you're just playing Christian? 
You know, the foolish virgins showed up and they looked like bridesmaids. They dressed like bridesmaids. They even had torches like bridesmaids. Everyone who saw them would have thought, look, those are the bridesmaids. But they were not genuine members of the wedding party. They lacked the one key item needed to be bridesmaids. Oil. Some of you look like Christians. Some of you talk like Christians. You dress like Christians. You act like Christians. You come to church. And at church, you can put on the show. But you lack the one key ingredient needed to be a Christian. Saving faith. You still haven't given up on your own goodness. You still haven't given up on the idea that you can be right with God on your own. You still love sin. You claim you came to Christ years ago, but your life never changed. You say you have a new relationship with Christ, but you don't have a new relationship to sin. You want to hold on to sin. You want to hold on to your desires so that you can enjoy them just a little bit more. So you put off Christ, and you keep putting off Christ. And you keep saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it right someday. I'm going to come to Christ at some point. I'm going to give up on my sin. I'm going to finally repent once and for all at some point in the future. And the Bible says you're a fool. Because you don't know when that day or hour comes. You have sat in church, you've heard the warnings and the gospel called to salvation, and yet you continually refuse to bow the knee and submit to Christ. The only way, the only way that you are going to be prepared for judgment is by submitting and coming to faith in Christ. Giving up on you, giving up on your religion, just because you come to Grace Bible Church doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Just because I'm preaching this morning doesn't mean I'm going to heaven. The only reason anyone goes to heaven is because they have been saved by Christ. And to refuse to come to Christ, to refuse to trust in Him, is to be a fool in the biblical sense. It is to be unprepared for what you know is coming. And that is the first characteristic of a fool. The fool is unprepared. He is unprepared. Second characteristic of a fool. The fool is deceived. The fool is deceived. Look at verse 5. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. As I stated earlier, the bridegroom, the, the husband, could show up at any time. Today, tomorrow, six months from now. It could go out all the way out to a year. The most important thing for the bridegroom was not being back at a certain time. The most important thing for him was to make sure that he had a house ready for his bride and that he had the funds and the financial ability to support her and care for her. That was the most important thing. And the bride was to keep herself pure and chaste for her husband and the bridesmaids were to stay there with her and wait for the groom. And if that took him a day, if that took him all night, the bride, bride and her maids are just to sit there and wait. And all ten of the virgins did the exact same thing. The foolish ones and the, the wise ones, they all did the same thing. They all went to sleep. Now, some have said, well, this is, this is dereliction of duty. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. No, they were all with the bride. They were all at her house. They were all waiting Life went on while the, while the groom was away. They still had to be able to sleep. This wasn't something wrong. This was just, they're human. They need rest. And that's what you see here when they go to sleep. This is just them doing what humans have to do. 
But then other people say, well, how can they be tired at a time like this? They're going to meet the bridegroom. Shouldn't they be excited about it? They're all about to go to a party. Why would they go to sleep right now? Verse 6, he gives us an answer. But at midnight there was a shout. Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. That's why they were all tired. It's midnight. It literally refers to the middle portion of the night. Somewhere around 2 to 3 a.m. in the morning. Most evenings around 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. Don't you want to go to sleep? All the virgins, likely the bride herself, had fallen asleep. We're not told how long they were asleep. But that sleep is interrupted. Kind of rudely. It's interrupted by someone shouting. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Apparently, they had someone stationed as a watch. Someone was sitting there looking down the road, waiting for the bridegroom. And this person's job was to alert everybody else, hey, here comes the bridegroom, get up, prepare. And so when the bridegroom got there, they could all have their lamps lit and be ready for him. And it appears from the text that the bridegroom is some distance away. He's down the road. And we know that because from the time of the shout, the virgins all have time to get up and prepare their lamps. Look at verse 7. Then all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. They all got up and began doing what they were supposed to do, lighting their torches. And as soon as their torch was lit, they could go outside and meet the bridegroom. And he says they trimmed their lamps. What does that refer to? Well, remember, the lamp is a stick with rags wrapped around it. And oftentimes you would just tear the rags. Well, when you tear rags, what happens? You get little strings dangling off it and little pieces of cloth hanging down. You don't want to light those on fire, so you trim those and cut those off so they don't hang down and burn your hand. And once it was trimmed, you would take your oil and you'd pour the oil over the lamp and get the rags wet enough. You get the rags wet, but not to the point where they're dripping. But five of the virgins go to do this and they realize they have a problem. Verse 8, The fool said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Notice the end of their statement. Our lamps are going out. They got them lit. The five foolish lit their lamps, they got them lit, they got them burning, and as soon as they got them burning, the torch started to sputter and then started going out and producing a whole bunch of smoke, which I'm sure the bride was so pleased to have smoke filling her house. And after the smoke, the lamp just goes out. And you have nothing but a smoking wick. And so these foolish virgins reveal that while they didn't plan ahead correctly, they do have plan B. And plan B is, I'll just borrow some oil from somebody else. I'll just go over here and get oil from these other virgins who did prepare. Notice I said, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. I don't have oil, I didn't bring my oil, but you have some. Why don't you give me some of your oil so I can light my lamp? But they quickly find out that plan B is not a viable option. The prudent virgins all brought enough oil for their own lamps. They didn't bring enough oil for everybody else's lamp. 
They didn't bring oil for the five foolish virgins. Look at verse 9. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. The prudent virgins realized something. If I give my oil to her, or I give half my oil to her, I won't be able to wet the whole whole torch with it, and therefore only part of the torch will burn, and it'll go out before the procession is over. And I'm going to be a part of an insult to my friends, because they won't have burning torches all the way through the procession. We only have enough oil to light my lamp. And I'm not going to embarrass the bride and the groom by letting my lamp go out. And so the prudent virgins correctly told the foolish, nope, not giving you my oil. It would be better for them to have five lit lamps than ten smoking ones. And so the prudent ones said, look, you, you need to go to the dealers, go to the store, and buy your own oil. Well, let's give the foolish ones some credit. Maybe this was plan C. Maybe this is what they thought they could do. When the bridegroom comes, someone will see him from far away, and what I can do, it'll be in the middle of the day for sure, and I'll just be able to go and get some oil from the dealer. Maybe that's what I can do. Maybe they thought they had time. But even if that's what they thought, they were wrong. They were wrong in believing that the prudent virgins would have enough to share. And they were wrong to believe that they would be able to go and buy oil in time for the wedding festival. Look at verse 10. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Before the foolish virgins could return with their oil, before they could buy their oil, the bridegroom shows up. And he is escorted to the wedding feast by the five prudent virgins. They didn't have the time. They thought they would. We're looking at the second characteristic of the fool. The fool is deceived. These foolish virgins were deceived in believing they didn't need to prepare as they were told to. They thought the rules for partaking in the wedding feast didn't apply to them. Those rules are for everybody else, not me. They believe they could find a solution at the last minute. They can get in some other way. They were deceived in believing they could get into the wedding feast on somebody else's oil. And Jesus says they are fools because they are deceived. Some of you are deceived. Some of you might be thinking that you can get into heaven another route than what scriptures clearly say. This morning in the equipping class, I I was teaching on Roman Catholicism and how they offer sacrifices for themselves. And they think that by their sacrifice, they can somehow earn favor and merit with God. Separate and apart from what Scripture actually says. You might believe that because you were raised in a Christian home. Well, I've been a Christian my whole life. I was baptized at age two. I'm a Christian, therefore. Kids in the room. Young people. You might think, well, my parents are Christian. My dad's in the ministry. My mom serves in all these other places. Surely I'm on my way to heaven. You're deceived. You may have gone to church your whole life. You might know the the Bible better than the guy preaching. 
you may have memorized more Scripture. And if you think that makes you a Christian, you're deceived. Because you have never turned from your sin. Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born from above. That presupposes that your life will change. That your behavior will change. That you are a new creature. That your heart goes from loving and longing for sin to loving and longing for righteousness. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. But those who call themselves Christian and the hunger and thirst for sin are deceived. You have never turned to Christ to save you from your sin. Maybe you think somehow on Judgment Day, God will give you a special exception. That the call to be prepared, to be ready for judgment, doesn't apply to you. You'll get to Judgment Day and God will say, you know what, never mind. The universalist was right. Everybody goes to heaven. You think that there's going to be a plan B, a way of salvation other than faith and submission to Christ. You're deceived. You're a fool. Acts 4, verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Repentance and faith is the only option. Jesus is the only way to heaven. He is your only hope. And if you reject him, there is nothing left. Judgment is coming, and when it comes, there are no other plans. There is no other alternative. If you are not in Christ, if you have not trusted in Christ and in Christ alone, you will be condemned. You will be kicked out of heaven. You will be excluded. The door will be shut in your face, and you will be cast away. That's not my opinion. That's not my interpretation. That's what Jesus said. John 8, 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Matthew 25, 41, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Eternal conscious torment and punishment for those who reject the only way of salvation. And people say, well, you know, hell is the place where God is absent. And people in hell don't have God's presence near them. That's actually wrong. God is present in hell. He's not suffering there, but he is there. Hell is not a place where God is absent. Hell is a place where his mercy and his grace are unavailable. His mercy and grace are available to you right now. Have you truly trusted in Christ? Are you depending on Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Or are you still hoping for plan B? Are you still lying to yourself that you have time to repent later? If you are, you're a fool. And that brings us to the final characteristic of the fool. Number three, the fool is condemned. The fool is condemned. Look at verse 11. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. Now, I want you to notice that right at the beginning of the verse, he starts off with the phrase, later. That means that between verses 10 and 11, there's been some significant amount of time that has passed. What happened with the foolish virgins? 
We're not told. Were they able to buy some oil? We don't know. Were the stores even open? I'm pretty sure they didn't have a 24-hour Walmart. Which means they probably had to go wake some guy up to try to buy some oil. Text doesn't actually say. But it does say that they show up to the wedding feast. Let me in. Open the door. And notice what they say. Lord, Lord, open for us. Let us in. We want to be a part of the party. We want to participate in the festivities. I mean, after all, we're bridesmaids. We're supposed to be there. These are the virgins who failed to do their job and escort the bride and groom. They failed to honor their friend. They failed to follow the instructions that were necessary for their entrance into the party. And now they find themselves outside of the party, standing at the door with the door shut and locked, and they're knocking on the door, begging to be able to enter. All of their friends, the bride, the groom, the other virgins, they're all inside enjoying the party, and they are outside locked out. Not only are they locked out, but the bridegroom has a shocking response. Verse 12, But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Not only are they not allowed into the party, they find out they were never invited in the first place. The bridegroom tells them, I don't know who you are. Who are you? You're a stranger to me. I didn't invite you to my party. You're not a part of this wedding festival. You can translate that little phrase a different way. The Greek will actually translate this way. Truly I say to you, I never knew you. Sound familiar? I do not know you now. I have never known you. We've never met. We've never had any kind of relationship with each other. You and I are strangers. You may dress like a bridesmaid. You may pretend to be a part of the wedding feast. But you are an imposter. You are a hypocrite. You have no place here. I never knew you. Kind of sounds like what Jesus says in Matthew 7. When someone cries out, Lord, Lord. In the Greek, you repeat something twice to make it emphatic. They truly believed that he was their Lord. They truly thought they were on their way to heaven. Lord, Lord. And the reply there in Matthew 7 is, I never knew you. Matthew 7, verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? They truly thought they were Christian. And they had pseudo evidence to prove their Christianity. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't I preach that sermon that time? Didn't I go out witnessing for you? Didn't I cast out demons? I've never done that, actually. Didn't we perform miracles? Can any of you say you have performed miracles or cast out demons? They all had these works. They all had these deeds that they can point to. They all had some form of religion. And they all thought they could get in that way. 
And just like the five virgins, Jesus responds to them in verse 23 of Matthew 7, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Practice lawlessness. You who live like there is no law. Like Christ makes no demands upon you. Who don't care about holiness and righteousness and purity. To those, he says, I never knew you. You were never submitted to me. You never came to me in saving faith. You never called upon me to be your Savior. And when Judgment Day came, they found themselves disavowed and disowned. What happens to them after this? Matthew provides several statements throughout his gospel that explain this judgment. In Matthew 13, Matthew 13, verse 41, the Son of Man will send for his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. There it is and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is repeated again in Matthew 13, verse 50, and he will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's repeated again in Matthew 22, 13, Matthew 24, 51, Matthew 25, verse 30. And after all those statements directly from Jesus, there are people today who will tell you there's no such thing as hell. These are people who are deceived into thinking that they could come and not be prepared. They were deceived into thinking that they could have a plan B, that they can go to church and play church on Sunday and then live like the devil the rest of the week. That they could hold on to their sin, that they could refuse to bow the knee to Christ, that they could ignore the repeated command after command and command after warning after warning after warning that they need to prepare for judgment. They ignore all of it. Is that you? Because if it is, your end is condemnation. Back in Matthew 25, Jesus ends the parable in verse 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Don't be a fool. Get ready. You are not guaranteed a tomorrow. Young person, you, you might have only five, six, seven, eight, nine years to your life. You might think that you have a long time to live. But you could be standing before him in judgment today. We could all die today. Are you ready for that? Are you prepared? Or are you a fool? The gospel of Jesus Christ is not make yourself a good person, do all these good works, and then if you can make yourself holy, Jesus will accept you. That is not the gospel. The gospel is you can't do anything to deserve it. And Christ will pay for every one of your sins. He will cover them all. If you would just give up on you, if you would just give up on your works, if you would just give up on trying to be the person you're supposed to be, and you would just recognize what you actually are, you are a sinner condemned. You are facing judgment. And what you need to do is fall on your knees before Christ and beg Him to save you. And if you ask, well, what if He doesn't save me right now? Well, you need to keep on begging. You need to keep on going back and pleading to him. There is not one single person in hell today who earnestly and honestly sought after Christ. Everyone who goes to Christ and asks for forgiveness receives it. 
everyone. The book of Hebrews says he is able to save forever those who are perfected. If this morning this sermon has beat you up, it's kind of like Paul said, I'm not sorry if it leads to a godly sorrow. And that godly sorrow leads to repentance and faith. Run to Christ. Beg him. If there's a doubt in your heart this morning, please beg him. And if you still don't understand, come and see me afterwards. I'll be happy to talk with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we, um, we recognize what we are. There is no one here who doubts what we are. We can all look at our own life. Our own, we can all look at our own hearts and recognize that we are anything but good. And Father, you are gracious. You've given us this very clear passage, a very clear teaching that we need to be ready for judgment, that judgment is coming. And you've also given us your Son. You've given us a very clear demonstration of Christ. You've shown us Christ. You've given us. He's given his life. We have the clear testimony of your word where he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Father, you know every soul here. You know every person here. You know the condition of every heart of every person that hears the sermon this morning. And we ask that you would change their hearts. Anyone who does not know Christ this morning, that you would be pleased to change their hearts, that you would draw them to Christ, that they would come in humble submission and faith in Christ and be saved and be prepared for the judgment that is coming. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.